Have you ever played the yes and no game? I have not. Whoa, <laughs> good one. <laughs> I got skills. <laughs> My name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to the new Economics Foundation's weekly economics podcast. This week, I'm going to be talking to Alice Martin, who's a researcher from the economy and finance team here at NEF, who's going to be talking to us about our trade unions. Britain's trade unions have six million members, but they're not the force they once were. I think there are elements in the government who see an attack on trade unions as unfinished business. They want to make economic recovery harder. They want to provide a platform for confrontation. I think the government is looking to put all the power in the employers' hands at the expense of working people. What we're trying to do is just strike a more reasonable, fairer balance. Among those union leaders are people who fight hard for their members and whom I respect. But there are also hardliners, militants, itching for a fight. So, Alice, thanks for joining us. Uh, please don't tell anyone how long we've kept you in the office for. Uh, welcome. <laughs> thanks. So you've been looking at the relationship between trade union membership uh, and the national income, usually measured uh, through our GDP rate. First of all, trade union membership has been declining since the 1980s. Why do you think this has happened? Um, well, there's a few reasons. The major one is the reforms that happened under the Thatcher government in the 80s and carried on into the 90s that basically introduced lots of new regulations on union activities and new laws that made their work much more difficult. Also, the way we work has changed a lot since the 70s. Today, people are much more isolated at work. Lots of people are on casual or temporary contracts. Lots of positions are outsourced to freelancers. Zero-hour contracts are on the rise again. I could go on and on. I will go on and on. In fact, employees <laughs> employees are split up across different offices, um, even different countries sometimes. All of those changes make for a much more fragmented workforce. There's less opportunity to get together with colleagues and discuss what's going on in your job, basically. So unions do have a really difficult task of representing this increasingly flexible and disconnected workforce. And it's unfortunate because it's those people on casual and temporary contracts that probably need unions the most. I should say as well that actually, despite the fact that overall union membership is declining, over the last five years, membership among people working in the private sector has actually increased. So it certainly isn't the case that unions are less relevant or less needed by employees today. And how many people are in trade unions? What's the rate of decline? At its highest point in the early 80s, it was about half of the workforce were in a union. Now it's about 25%, so it's about a quarter. So what's happened uh, to the national income during this time? Uh, so whilst union membership has declined and people have become more isolated at work, less money's been going to wages overall in the economy. And we know this by looking at national income. So national income is the total value of a country's outputs, so the value of all goods and services produced in one year, and we measure it in GDP. Over the period that unions have been in decline, two things have happened. A smaller chunk of national income has been going to wages and national income itself has basically just been growing more slowly. 
Okay, and, and so what's the correlation between these things? Why has the share of wages in, in national income gone down as people have stopped being trade union members? What do trade unions actually do? Uh, well, one of the main functions of unions is to ensure that staff get adequate wages. So speaking in very general terms, it's in the interest of individual businesses and organisations to keep wages of their staff low so that they can take more money out as profit to potentially invest it. Um, so unions play a role in collectivising the voice of the workforce and put forward the case for investing more money in staff wages. So if less people are in unions, then less people overall have a say on their pay and on their working conditions. Okay, so could there be other explanations, though, for the wage share going down, you know, a a globalised marketplace, for example? I mentioned before there's been lots of changes to how we work over the last few decades, Uh, the rise of casual contracts, but also welfare cuts, periods of high unemployment, austerity. All of these things have affected the kind of say that employees can have over their work and their conditions. So basically, when times are really hard, you're more likely to take on a job with rubbish pay and conditions, and you're less likely to speak up about it. But other factors that are linked to the shrinking wage share are, as you say, globalisation, technological change, which basically means some jobs are now carried out by robots, and the F word, financialisation. We spend more time trading in financial markets and the profits from that don't really translate into wages. So that has an effect on on the wage share. Okay, bro, a note to self episode on robots. (laughs) But growth has been broadly going up over this time, except during the last recession, of course. Surely it's only by driving for growth that we can get these higher wages that we all want. The myth that higher growth means higher wages doesn't really stand up anymore. That's because it's based on an idea that if wages are kept low relative to company returns, investment by firms encouraged by these greater profits will pick up. But that just hasn't been the case. So if you imagine a national income pie, it is true that that pie has been growing over this period, albeit much more slowly than it had been in the past. But with the slowly growing pie, the slice being taken out each year for wages of employees has actually been shrinking. And the rest, so the growing slice, is the profit share, which is basically the income that goes to private business owners, shareholders, financial investors, uh, etc. So if we just were to look at GDP growth on its own, we wouldn't actually learn anything about where money in the UK is going, how people's living standards are changing. But if we dig a bit deeper than GDP and look at how the national income pie is sliced, you can see that the UK workforce has been getting a consistently smaller piece for the last four decades. So less money's been going to wages. It's had a negative impact on growth. Okay, that sounds national income pie sounds very good. Greedy profit slice I'm not so interested in. So uh, higher wages are actually important then for growth. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Wages play an important role in driving economic activity. And that's because working people, which is most of us, spend our wages back into the economy more so than people who live off company profits. Um, And that's particularly true, actually, in the UK. Uh, So if the profit share goes up in the UK and the wage share goes down, economic activity will slow overall and the growth rate of national income drops. So what, what, what we've concluded from that is that the UK is actually a wage-led economy. And that directly contradicts the argument that deregulating labour markets, reducing union powers, keeping wages down will boost investment and in turn boost the economy. That doesn't chime at all with the evidence we've found. Are there other countries that are non-wage-led economies? There are, yeah. In Europe, there aren't actually many. They tend to be smaller countries and they tend to be export-led countries. So Switzerland is one. Basically, it's countries that get more profit from exporting goods than they do from consumer spending in the economy. So, But even countries that you might expect to be 
profit-led or export-led, such as Germany, they come out as a, as a wage-led economy as well. So what have trade unions been doing about stuff like low wages and zero-hours contracts uh, in uh, recent years? Uh, well, they've played a central role, really, in campaigns to abolish uh, zero-hour contracts and introduce the living wage, for example. And there's tons of evidence out there showing that workplaces with union representation are more productive and they have happier staff. Also, a kind of obvious fact I would have thought, but uh, countries with stronger unions tend to be more equal. The IMF have actually just published a paper saying that. So there's there's all of this great stuff that, that unions are achieving. And despite this, the government are planning to lay on more restrictions uh, to their activities in a, in a new bill, which is, is being read in Parliament soon. What's that bill called, if people want to look at it? It's called the Trade Union Bill. Exciting stuff. Ah, but it should be called the Anti-Trade Union Bill. <laughs> exactly. Well, according to our evidence, it's not just anti-trade union, it's anti-employee and it's it's based on a model that actually doesn't doesn't work. So much so we've calculated that if union membership was at the same level today as it was in the 1980s, so if lots of us joined the unions, over 27 billion pounds would be added to national income. So that's just a kind of speculation we've made off the back of our findings that show that unions really are good for the economy. Okay, Ellis, well thank you very much for coming in and and uh, putting that argument to our listeners it was a pleasure having you thank you cheers music for the weekly economics podcast is provided by poddington bear not to brag guys but we're off on a little mini break don't worry though we'll be back on the 5th of october stay tuned because we've got some pretty hot guests coming up the weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org.